welcome back to Agnes by Alma. Um, this is a podcast deep dive into the films of Anya Varda, um, my favorite director, everyone's favorite director. <laughs> if you're listening to this, I assume that's true. Um, and yeah, I am delighted to have our first repeat guest because they're so awesome. Um, Susan Hewitt, thanks so much for being back on. Hello, I'm delighted to be the first repeat guest. I didn't know that was the title that I yeah, had. That's, <laughs> now I must put it on every letterhead. Excellent. Um, yeah, as I was sort of saying to you earlier, I have already asked and got your history with film studies, Varda studies, all of that. Um, but when we spoke on the phone, I was actually thinking that was like almost a year ago now, which is kind of insane. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when we first uh, spoke on the phone about sort of if you'd be interested in doing this podcast, you brought up Le Bonheur and Daguerreotype as the two that you were particularly uh, keen on talking about. So I was wondering if you want to talk about like why you chose those two. Um, so I chose Daguerreotype um, selfishly because I kind of harbored a secret desire well, not so secret if you know me in real life, I guess. Uh, probably since Faces Places came out, um, to kind of watch them as a double feature. And I initially wanted to write about them, but then I graduated college. And it's like, who's going to read my essay? Because I'm not in college anymore. I also think Daguerreotype is probably my favorite of her films. Mm. Um, I think first and foremost, her ability to create something this it's spellbinding, honestly, to me at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's taken out of such a small world. Um, and I think that really exemplifies what she is so good at. I mean, it, it showcases, like, her eye for all these match cuts and pairing footage with these crazy audio clips that don't really seem to work together, but then they do in kind of the last second. Um and yeah, it's just this really clever film, but it's also really, really, really sweet. Um, and I don't know if you had this experience too, but like every time they were in the perfumer's shop, I I texted Alma this earlier um, for those listening, but I was like, I am literally the the like big about to cry eyes emoji. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably because she just has this way with older people that I find really sweet and all people, but especially older people. And she was in her thirties at the time of making this. And I think a lot of people that are our age and a little older don't pay a lot of attention to elderly people. And it's, it's sad. Um, but I think we also know her as one of the greatest interviewers of her time. I think she's the greatest interviewer I've ever seen. Um, but she's not actually in the movie, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, maybe people know this, maybe they don't, but she made this movie under weird confining circumstances where she was raising her two-year-old son with Jacques Demy at the time, and he's obviously a very busy man, and kind of childcare fell on her and her daughter, who's a teenager around the time. Um, and so she was limited to a pretty small crew, but also to where the cabling for her little lighting setup and her camera could reach, which I think is about 90 meters, she says, I think at one point. Um, mm-hmm. And there's obviously the like 
Sorry, there's a dog sniffing around the microphone, and it's a different dog than the other one. <laughs> All dogs welcome. Yep. <laughs> and there's kind of the obvious womb allegory, but I don't need to beat that with a stick, I don't think. Um, and I like to talk about Faces Places as kind of the anti of Degahiotip, because instead of being confined to just her street in Paris, which I will say she lived in this apartment for all of her adult life, which I think is really remarkable, and I don't know anyone who's on track to accomplish that. Um, and people just don't really live like that anymore, and it's, I, it's just so her to have lived in the same place forever. Um, but obviously in Faces Places, she kind of gets to go wherever she wants in France, and it's this... Um, it's really sweet because she's an octogenarian. At this point, she's 88, so she's almost a nonagenarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody in movie world respects her. I've never heard anyone talk shit about her ever. Um, she's so Except for universal. those people in the Oh my god, short, in the letter, yeah. About. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they sound like a bunch of nimbies, if you ask I know, me. Truly. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but I I just think it's really sweet that she's kind of, I think, a lot bolder in Faces Places, probably because she's one of those old people who doesn't really give a fuck anymore. Yeah. Um, she does not fear death, as she said. She's looking forward to it. Um, and I also think JR is kind of a mirror of how she is as an interviewer and as a subject and a co-director. Um, very similar to her younger self. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comments on this. She says, oh, you're so good with older people. Um, and it's it's just really sweet to watch. And I also think it's an amazing movie because it's just as much about her and her journey through life as it is about French villagers. Um, and I just love watching her being in front of the camera. She's just a delight. I don't like calling old people cute, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> She makes it hard not to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great double feature in comparison between the two. And it's interesting how, like, yeah, in some ways she points in this to the way that, like, old age is quite sad for it sort of being this overlooked part of the population. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But how she makes that, like, actually, like, quite quite a liberating part Mm -hmm. of life where, like, you know, her children are adults. Um, Mm -hmm. She, like, can just hit the road it's really super cool. Um, yeah, word, cool. So do you want to start with Daguerreotype, I guess, and then go into the shorts? Sure, yeah. Je n'ai pas choisi les magasins les plus pittoresques de la rue Daguerre. Non, je m'en suis tenue à mes commerçants, comme on dit. À ceux que je pratique chaque jour. À ceux qui sont à moins de 50 mètres de ma porte. This is uh, essentially having those constraints that you mentioned um, of like being a mother to a two-year-old and feeling somewhat bound to home. Um, She, I guess, got this like kind of carte blanche from a German television like Mm -hmm. channel or production company. Which I also didn't know. Yeah. It's like very random. random. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like why? (laughs) No idea. And like, yeah, they just told her, yeah, we'll give you money, make whatever you want. And so she decided to basically do a portrait of her neighbors on Rue de Guerre and her, like, immediate neighbors. So, yeah, again, using, like, the wiring going from her apartment as Mm -hmm. sort of, like, this umbilical cord metaphor um, and also just, like, a legitimate 
logistical obstacle. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she just basically interviewed a lot of the shopkeepers in stores that she herself frequented, which I think is just an element of this movie I so love. It's just, like, they clearly know her. Mm-hmm. Like, they've known her for years, and it's just everyone seems to have that relationship where they all know each other and are always saying hi, um, mm-hmm. which is just, like, really... I don't know. Again, I guess rare. I was just telling my partner, like, I just want to be, like, a regular somewhere. Like, I'm not... Mm-hmm. I think regular. everyone wants that. Yeah. Everyone wants to be thought of as a regular. <laughs> totally. Um, but I feel like I don't know many people who are genuine regulars. Um, maybe mm-hmm. because I, myself, am not a regular. Yeah, the only the only people I know, other than old people, who are true regulars places are people that love to talk about how they're a regular somewhere. Yeah. Um, this was mostly in New York, so maybe it's just the New York type of person. But it's my point of reference too. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I do think that it, that kind of being a regular thing and having everything you need within steps is a part of city living that I don't think a, a lot of people who have never lived in a huge city like Paris or New York or London. Um, LA people are excluded from this because I don't think this really exists in LA. But yeah, you can't walk places. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of suburban and rural people don't really understand um, that it can feel really small. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, li- I lived in Greenwich Village for a really long time, and I, not to sound like the person who's like, I never go above 14th Street, but I really didn't <laughs> leave like my little weird Sixth Avenue block that was kind of triangle shaped because I had everything I needed and. I only went somewhere else if I was invited somewhere else and right. I but it's it's obviously nothing close to as cute as how she portrays it cuz it's also 50 years ago. So, yeah, it's hard to be that quaint. Mhm. I first of all completely forgot this movie was in color. For some reason I thought it was in black and white. So that was a surprise. <laughs> um, I guess cuz daguerreotypes are Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> why. I don't know. Um but I, I mean, my my biggest thing immediately with this movie, and I guess this hasn't changed. I looked at my, I have a detailed IMDb list of every movie I've ever seen every year since 2011. God bless. Um, so I can't, if I like rewatch a movie, this sounds like I'm not okay when I say this. <laughs> I realize now that I'm saying it out loud. But I noticed that I haven't watched this movie since 2016 or something, and I guess what hasn't really changed is I just love looking at stuff from mm-hmm. the past and just how everything is handwritten or typewritten and just things like that. It's like looking at a Sears catalog from a hundred years ago, you know? It's just, yeah. wow, stuff really used to look like this. And I guess Paris still kind of does look like this a lot of the time, but it's different. And obviously the, the short kind of shows us that. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote multiple times in my notes, actually, just, like, do places like this still exist? This sort of, like, self-sustaining village quality to, like, one part of the street. And and it, it was nice to see. It was my first time seeing the short in which she returns in 2005. Um, and it was nice to see that in some ways it was very similar. Um, and even the things that had been replaced, they were still, like, replaced by really, like, random artisanal stuff. It's like, yeah, it's not, like, a tailor anymore it's like a wicker yeah repair which, guy like it's still it's not like oh now it's like a crate and barrel or whatever which is so 
Parisian because I remember <laughs> my mom was trying to get cane chairs repaired and she was basically told that no one else on the east coast of America does it anymore. Like, it just doesn't exist. And the fact that someone opened that shop in <laughs> at some point, like, slightly before 2005 is so fucking French. Yeah, totally. <laughs> They're an old sow stuck in the mud, as they say. <laughs> but yeah, and then also just to, like, reflect on, well, like, 2005 is already almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, don't say that. <laughs> I know. If, you know, Anya Sparta were still around to make a Rudiger and... 2025 um i'm curious how it would change i definitely do want to make a pilgrimage i'm curious if you because i know you did your like varda tour of paris with mm-hmm. all the cleo sites did you see rue de guerre at all no and i actually because i'm a google maps fiend i <laughs> i went to look at uh, on google maps because i was like where in the 14th is this um and google maps showed me that the street is actually completely pedestrianized all the time and I I just think it's interesting now that it's like it's I guess a kind of a tourist destination. And I never really thought of her as living in a place like that. Um, I kind of imagine that she had some secret enclave of Paris that was kind of her own, but apparently it's like crazy widely visited. A tourist destination because of her or just generally? No, well that's what I'm wondering. So I guess it it's just an open air market, so I think it's it started as a functional market, but now it it more seems like it's like a fun touristy market to go to. Got it. Is kind of my takeaway. But then I wa I literally just watched the two thousand five short, um, and she said that it, it was shown in tons of festivals and stuff, which I guess I didn't know. And maybe I was thinking too highly of myself, but I thought this was like a little bit of a lesser known one of her films, but I guess it garnered kind of a huge response for for one of her movies, I guess, and for something of this genre, but I guess a lot of people came to visit and wrote letters and sent money and stuff, yeah. so I was kind of taken aback by that, so maybe part of it is that, I don't know, I'll have to visit. I know, me too. I feel like it's, I was also, because I consider this somewhat of a B-side in her filmography. And I think mm-hmm. that's true. I'm just curious, okay. like, it was big among the type of people who, like, go to film festivals. Yeah, when I saw that it, it showed at, like, what film, what theater did it show at in New York? It was, like, anthology or somewhere like that. Okay. You go to, like, watch a film, not a movie. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I guess we can maybe start with, like, where she starts, which is with the... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Au Chardon Bleu shop. Is that the blue thistle? Yes, the blue yep. thistle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I um, I liked that she sort of is upfront about where the seed of this idea for this film came, which is just sort of her fascination with that shop. And that was sort of the first one she gravitated toward. And like it's sort of window displays that didn't change in like the 25 years she had been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the, you know, central woman shopkeeper who yes is I think potentially the most compelling person that Anya Sparta like has ever filmed I don't know if that's a bold statement no I completely agree like something something about her really gets to me and I think it's getting to me more to that I'm older and I have like a life partner now 
Um, and I guess their partnership is also really what we can talk about that later because that's a whole part I'm of the I'm not talking about it now. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love that she, a lot of this film is about partnership. And I think it's pretty clear that this woman has, uh, Mrs. Blue Thistle, has dementia or kind of late Alzheimer's. Um, and I've seen people go through it in my family. It's awful. Um, but it's not really a cross-section of why she doesn't speak that much or doesn't really seem to be super aware of her surroundings. But I, I love how much she captures the way that they look at each other. Um, and she, I don't know, I, lo- I just love how she interviews everybody about how they met their partner and how they, um, and how they ended up in Paris doing business together. And I was wondering how you felt about all that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty heart melting. Um, mm-hmm. I love the, the part. Cause initially I think when I first watched this movie, I was a little, I was sort of like, oh, like, he always talks for her. Mm-hmm. And I I was sort of, like, a little bit on edge about that. I think um, I felt the same way when I was, like, 21 watching this as well. Yeah, totally. And I was like, oh, man, let her speak. Um, mm-hmm. But she seldom does, and when she does, it's often, like, unsubtitled because it's unintelligible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But when he, she first interviews them directly to camera, I think they say their names um it's when she's like kind of cutting through multiple direct mm-hmm. camera and people are saying like oh i'm maria i'm from this tiny town and i'm the baker's mm-hmm. wife Marcel. Nous sommes installés depuis 1933, Mrs. Blue Thistle just says her name. She just says Marcel, mm-hmm. um, without any sort of biographical details. And mm-hmm. then he sort of jumps in and says, like, yeah, my wife's name is Marcel, and my name is Léonce, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says his full name. And just hearing his full name makes her smile Mm-hmm. Oh. And it's like the first time we see her smile in the movie, and it was mm-hmm. ugh, so moving to me. And the other time she smiles at him when they're in the butcher shop and they're picking up the two flank steaks. Yeah. And she's just standing there just smiling at him. Ugh. And like kind of brushing something off his shoulder yeah. or something. I think just... I like actively clutched my chest. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ugh. So it was sweet. Just... And I guess I think what made me feel like he wasn't talking over her or speaking for her. I don't know. There's something really dignified about the way that he takes care of her, clearly takes care of her really well and um, isn't kind of, I don't know. I just feel like I've been in a lot of uh, retirement homes and things like that. And there's a lot of undignified stuff that happens and you see relatives getting, I don't know. I just don't like when people talk down to older people, especially people with advanced dementia, etc. Um, and he, her husband doesn't do that at all. And it's just a part of his life and her life. And, um, yeah, I, I, it was just really sweet to see. And it 
that's probably what makes me cry, <laughs> to be honest. Totally. Yeah. And they have a lot of shared moments. Like, I love also the scene when the man comes in to buy buttons. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. Yeah. And he, after the man leaves, he, like, sort of has trouble getting the box of white buttons, like, back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of this goofy thing because, like, he knows he's being filmed and he, like, can't quite get this mm-hmm. shoebox, like, lined <laughs> yeah. up. And, yeah, and he just, like, turns and looks at his wife and they kind of smile at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they just seem to be able to have these shared moments that don't rely on language that are just really intimate and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Ani's Varda has an eye for them, so it's really cool. And you can tell how much, like, Varda is in love with this woman just by mm-hmm. the way she films her, so... Mm-hmm. I, I also really love, I think, part of the partnership aspect of this film is I love watching people doing the opening and closing routines of their mm-hmm. shots. It's really choreographic when you look at the entrée, a sortie. It's the choreography in the couple. It's like it's a little dance. And we see a sort of relation d'entente, at least in the way to do this couple. I lived in London, it was two years ago now, but I worked at the vintage shop that my, now he's my husband, but we were just dating at the time. Um, And he had a vintage shop on this really old, very similar street. It's a market street and there's like a shoe store that only takes cash that's been there for almost 200 years and things like that on the street. And we even had those big wooden shutters and everything. And he and I kind of did the same routine where you're doing one thing, putting stuff outside, out on the sidewalk, and doing all your tasks, and then you do it in reverse at the end of the day. Yep. Um, and it, I really, really miss it, and I think this movie made me realize how much I miss it, but hmm. um, kind of watching how these all these couples have this little dance with each other. Yeah, the, the couple teams in this movie are pretty amazing. And also just the, like, that she saved for actually that blue thistle couple um that she kind of interviews them separately from each other it seems Mm -hmm. about sort of their story um and it's so funny just the moments of like difference in fact like I think one couple one person says oh we met in like 1924 yeah he's like he's like like, so wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah just like decade apart um that's just like very I don't know it reminds me of, like, my parents, like, when they're, like, 20 years into their marriage mm-hmm. and just, like, so comfortable with each other that the facts start kind of slipping or, like... But they also dad... kind of don't matter at the same yeah, time, Yeah, exactly. I guess. <laughs> yeah, my dad would always, like, introduce my mom and be like, this is my wife, Alma, and my daughter, Lisa, and oh would just totally God. flip our names and be like, well, We, we have try. this joke. I'm the youngest of five kids, and we always have this joke that my dad, when he's yelling for, or when we used to all live in the same house and would yell for one of us, he'd cycle through all of the names because <laughs> he could never figure out whose name he meant to say. That's so uh, funny. All dads are the same, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just, I also, I think we talked about this on, in the, our last little session, but um, I still love watching people talk about how they met their partner. Mm. Um, I love how people love it. It's, and everyone smiles. Like, I'm smiling right now, talking about people, talking about this this subject. Oh, I guess we can talk about uh, another sort of central part of this movie, 
um, which is the magic show. Oh, yeah. Which I also completely forgot happened. Yeah. Like, completely. Yeah, I sort of... I actually... I remember that there was a magician involved somehow, but, like, I didn't remember that she sort of used that as a device throughout the film. I thought it was just, like, a little part of it, but it's pretty much throughout. Um, but, yeah, essentially what it is is... Um, on, in the corner cafe of this neighborhood, um, there's uh, Miss Stog, the magician, is like coming to give a show. And Ani Sparta sort of uses that as a device, and she gets like all of these shopkeepers that she's been following all into one room in the audience mm-hmm. to watch this magic show, and then sort of uses it as like, yeah, her sort of editing structure of the entire film where she mm-hmm. cross cuts a lot of his magic tricks with a lot of their daily routine and sort of like, I guess, pointing out what's magical about sort of the mundane. And yeah, it's really beautiful and like extremely clever the way she puts it together. So I think I was a little hesitant to watch the 2005 documentary because I was worried it would shatter my little illusion of what I think the street is. Um, but I thought it was really interesting um, that she said she actually got everyone to come to this show. I guess my little France romanticizing brain thought that everyone just kind of turned up organically. Hmm. Um, but I think that just goes to show how how much work goes into making her her work look so effortless mm-hmm. um that I even thought that and you see that a lot in in faces places because it's a more behind the scenes e movie but they they clearly do so much so much planning to make things seem like chance encounters and things totally. like that um I also like that you can't really tell if the magician is actually good <laughs> Um, I don't know how I mean I still don't know how the knife there's a scene where he puts a giant carving knife through his forearm um, and it's utterly nauseating to watch and it looks so real and I can't believe that I can't figure out this magic trick from almost 60 years ago (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know how you feel about Miss Doug's skill level yeah well it's funny I wrote a note in my because his he gives a pretty long intro to his act and it's like Mm -hmm. very corny Mm -hmm. it's very (laughs) self-aggrandizing you just sort of like, we're going to go like millennia into the future and you'll see stuff that's like 2001 A Space Odyssey <laughs> or whatever. And I, I wrote a note. I was like, he's lucky that Ani Sparta was around to like drum up a crowd because mm-hmm. I feel like, like I would not. Yeah, no um, one would have showed up. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think what makes it so good is sort of her cutting. I think if it were just, like, a standalone sequence of his show, I think I would feel about it like I feel about most magic shows, which is, like, slight disinterest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I kind of... I, I was wondering how... what you think the juxtaposition is kind of indicating about the film. Like, why... Why do you think she has this whole scene intercut throughout basically the whole second half of the film? It's intercut 
every honestly it feels like every few seconds and I was just wondering what you think what you think the the meaning is or if she just thinks it's just fun I mean I do think it is sort of to to celebrate what is sort of the day-to-day and might be kind of overlooked as part of their routine Mm -hmm. as something kind of magical and cool Mm -hmm. I speaking of sort of uh, you know, planning versus chance. Um, I'm curious if she knew like that his act was going to line up so well with the I thing know. she was filming. Cause it's so like almost eerie how, you know, he's conjuring up bills of money, which cuts to, you know, them at the cashier or like that the woman she interviews, who's like, yeah, I dream about, um, traveling far away is the one who he like, puts to sleep in hypnosis. Like mm-hmm. it's just so perfectly done that I, I'm curious if she had a hand in his act or like got a script in advance or something. I'm wondering if she, again, back to faces places, she kind of does this thing where she's blocking people in real life, like how you block a scene, mm-hmm. but she kind of tells people where to be and kind of what to do, not in a bossy way, but just in a way that, that provides the best possible outcome for what she's shooting. And I'm kind of wondering if she got like a little script of Mistog's act and said, okay, well, we're going to have this guy be the one hypnotized and this lady have her head in the box full of knives. Um, And I'm wondering if she did do her little backstage tricks with that or if maybe she... Part of me wants to think that she just shoots and shoots and shoots and shoots and shoots and just has an insane memory for moving images mm-hmm. and just is incredible at editing or is incredible at advising an editor. Um, maybe it's probably just a combination of both. I yeah, know. I was about to say, it's likely both. Because <laughs> um, some of the things are just like very poetically tied. Like I think that another person with those two separate scenes wouldn't necessarily put them together. Like I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of his sort of fire breathing act and then the baker stoking the coals of his brick oven. Oh yeah. And then I love when she, this is not really related to the magic act, but one of my favorite cuts is um, the baker who's always in the same outfit, which I love, uh, <laughs> always wearing the same like gray white t-shirt. Yeah. Um, like disheveled, which probably made her editing really easy for mm-hmm. his scenes, but he's got one of those really, really long paddles and he puts in two baguettes or something like that. And then they're just raw dough. And then she kind of does this insanely seamless cut of him pulling them out and they're fully cooked, like, immediately. Yes. Um, and it's just so... It's just so witty. I don't know. I don't think I could compare her her knack for cutting stuff like this or um, layering audio over things like that um, to anybody else. I don't know if you can think of anyone else who... I certainly can't. And magic. I mean, and that's her own magic trick that it's like, wow. In Varda's world, you can put raw dough in the oven and it's like perfect baguettes two seconds later and I, I i wonder in a broader context if if this kind of whimsy in her filmmaking is kind of why she's not or at least wasn't until really recently when it became really cool to like her um i think you know what i mean but like, <laughs> yeah, i do <laughs> and it, i just think she wasn't really widely known or accepted within kind of this pantheon 
of filmmakers that she actually did a lot of stuff first compared to Truffaut and Godard. Mm-hmm. I, I can confidently say that. Um, and I think France doesn't really put her in the same league as people that are her contemporaries. I think she runs circles around yeah. um, in terms of just consistency. Um, and I wonder if it's because she makes movies that aren't super serious. Um, and you can kind of see why. I think everyone knows about the scene in Faces Places where she, where Godard kind of taunts her via a note on his window. And you can kind of see why they kind of, I don't, I can't see them really getting along because he's Mr. Like film has to be serious all the time. Um, like he, the reason he essentially had this friend breakup with Truffaut is because Truffaut made Day for Night and it's like a funny movie that people like. And he said, <laughs> you're bastardizing the medium of film by making a mainstream movie. Um, so yeah, I just wonder if that's kind of why she's not taken quite as seriously because her movies are just, they're just fun 90% of the time. Right. I'm curious, like that letter in the remake, which I guess I could, I'll just explain um, mm-hmm. to those who haven't seen it. So she made the short film where she returns to Rudiger in 2005, um, and she talks about how the street has changed, how her movie changed it in some ways, what's still there, what isn't. And um, and it ends sort of with uh, talking about like the reaction to the film. And I guess she got these two like, kind of hate mail letters. One was signed by multiple people in the neighborhood, I think. Yes. Throwing out there. Totally. Um, And, yeah, it was sort of saying, like, you made people on Rudiger seem so, like, I guess, primitive, and, like, Mm -hmm. it's such a bad image to put out there in the world of our street, which is crazy to me, because I love all these people that I just Mm -hmm. watched. J'ose espérer que vous ne nous infligerez pas un autre navet de ce genre. Vous devriez avoir honte, madame, d'avoir fait un film aussi minable. Et je pense aux téléspectateurs qui ne connaissent pas cette rue du 14e et qui vont penser que nous sommes des attardés vivant dans le 20e siècle. Yeah, so she's sort of like reading this letter and kind of laughing about it. But I'm curious, sort of going back to what you were saying about the general reception of Varda's work, especially in her own time, um, if that feeling, like I think one of the lines in the letter is like, what is the point about asking these people about what they dream? Like, that's not important. Mm-hmm. Um, if that was like a widespread feeling of just like, this stuff that you're choosing to film is so trivial. Mm-hmm. It sounds so dumb to say, but I just feel like those people didn't... They just didn't get it, I guess. They didn't get it, yeah. It's also just interesting, because I find that, like, even though there's this lightness and, like, humor to her work, it's also, like, as profound and serious as it gets, to me at mm-hmm. least. Like, that whole dream sequence is maybe my favorite in the movie, where she asks people sort of if they dream what they dream about and um and it's something that I've thought about a lot of like when I have like a stress dream about work Mm -hmm. it's always sort of a wake-up call to me of like oh I'm getting like too caught up in this bullshit capitalist 
world that we live in <laughs> and like I need to take a step back because if it starts infiltrating my unconscious then like it's bad yeah it's bad news nous avons peut-être tous envie de partir au crépuscule nous sommes sans doute tous captifs dans nos vies mais pour ceux qui sont fiers d'être normaux le rêve est maladie ainsi parlent-ils plus volontiers de leurs soucis professionnels que de leurs songes refusant toute rêverie et tout mouvement intérieur c'est vraiment le silence du sommeil profond c'est l'immobilisme routines can kind of hold people captive and like that dreaming should be an escape but for some that's like not a welcome escape and it's much more comfortable to dream just about work because it's what you think about all the time mm-hmm. um and i find that so like true and like very just very deep insight into humans that i think um makes this movie so powerful in addition to being like having its moments of whimsy and and all of that I come I totally forgot about those questions when she's interviewing um with the butcher and he's kind of like in a chair that's not a recliner but he's still extremely reclined. <laughs> um and he's talking about how he doesn't dream about work. Uh, mm-hmm. Which would be kind of horrifying if he did dream about work as a horse butcher. <laughs> he's also the one that says I think in the subtitles it's like I don't fall asleep I doze. Really? Yeah, he's like, I don't fall asleep, but I doze. And then in what he says in French is actually more, I don't know if like the proper translation is to doze, but he says like, I don't sleep, I lose myself though. Oh. Which is like, wow, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I actually have another note about French to English translation. Oh yeah. Um, I think this could kind of circle back to... The magic show and I, I think she very deliberately kind of smash cuts between every instance of people saying this phrase but the French term for love at first sight is uh, coupe de foudre which means bolt of lightning um, and I think she's kind of intercutting with um, the magic show when they're talking about how they first met or maybe my memory is completely wrong but I think there's something pretty mystical about even about just saying love at first sight I think is uh, pretty mystical saying Mm -hmm. um and i know that it's a real thing for a lot of people probably me included um but bolt of lightning just kind of takes it to that extra level where it's like there's an outside force that drew me to this person um and honestly not to sound corny but like i don't think there's anything more magical than that and i i've definitely experienced that thing of like oh my god this person is gonna be important to me Hmm. Um, and I, I tell people that and they're like, yeah, that like happened to me when I met my spouse and I'm like, oh my God, this happens to everyone and no one told me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I just thought that was really sweet that every single person used that exact phrase. Totally. When talking about their meeting, usually it was the men talking about meeting their wives. That's a really good, I didn't pick up on that. I did make a note of how all the dating stories are like so... Yeah, I guess magical or quaint, where it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, there was a flower festival, or like... They, met, they all met at, like, a dance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, literally oh my God. <laughs> how my partner's grandparents met. They all met at, like, a village dance. Oh. <laughs> That's, That's just amazing. how it used to happen. Yeah. I guess people meet at raves in Bushwick now, but I don't know <laughs> if it's quite the same. <laughs> 
I do like that woman who's like explains that she was at a dance that I guess was a little like seedy. Oh, of I don't ill know. repute. She yeah, said, which I, I fucking love. Yeah, I thought it was so funny. And Anya's was like, oh, oh, oh my god. It's, uh, I loved that. I forgot Incredible. about that. Um, do you want to move on to the Diary of a Pregnant Woman? Sure. Or L'Opera Mouffe. L'Opera Mouffe, au premier accord, au premier abord, c'est la bouffe. Kind of the first time, or at least maybe like the most dramatic um, time that I'm mm-hmm. like really deviating from the chronology. Because I feel like um, I've been sort of following the Criterion box set where they kind of go chronologically and group thematically these mm-hmm. films, which I think her career like really lends itself to that. Um, but I knew I wanted to do this movie with Decarotype, both of them having to do with motherhood, um, where this one, the short she filmed when she was very pregnant with her first child. Mm-hmm. And then as we discussed, Daguerreotype was like when she, when her second child was two years old. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and then just as like portraiture of the people in a very specific neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. in Paris. So this time it's Rue Mouffetard, which I guess like that neighborhood is called La Mouffe. That neighborhood now is like very, like a lot of places like, you know, developed wealthier. Um, mm-hmm. but at the time that she was filming it, which was 1958, it was like extremely impoverished. Um, she would just film the people she saw and she sort of was like feeling the contradiction of about to have her first child, feeling very hopeful and then also aware that she's bringing another human into this world that contains like so much misery. Mm-hmm. As someone who I have an older brother, um, I'm sort of like always interested in the two child <laughs> sort of relationship and how mm-hmm. like parenting styles change where I feel like not that my parents were ever anxious types, but I feel like in a lot of ways I benefited from being the younger one because like they had done it before. And so they could sort of, I think had less anxiety, were less careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, I feel like that sort of tracks with these two movies as well, where I feel like you can sense her anxiety in the first one that isn't so much there for the second one. Yeah. Hmm. I never thought about it that way. I guess it's also worth noting that um, she was pregnant out of wedlock, uh, mm-hmm. which obviously isn't a big deal at all today, but it's a mega big deal in the late 50s. Kind of amazing that she survived that, not in a literal sense, but in a social sense, um, especially in France. Um, and she, I, I'm pretty sure, basically had no support from this guy who I think was like a theater director or something. Um, yeah, although he was in this movie, which I guess, yeah, yeah. I don't know but, when he was like out of the picture because I know that he pieced out, yeah. Um, um, but I just can't, she was also so young, I just I can't imagine, um, it would be very scary what yeah. she would have been going through. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of found that this movie it reminds me of like a little bit of like a dickens novel Hmm. um kind of the imagery of people in the street kind of scowling all the time um 
and I, I wonder if she read him at all or anything like that because it, it kind of has that like gritty feel and it's it's actually so unlike any other thing that she's done I think correct me if I'm wrong but I don't I think, think there's true. anything quite like this that compares it's very it's it's very like free association of images where like for instance one of my favorite cuts ever is like where it opens on the sort of form of a naked pregnant woman mm-hmm. and then it cuts to someone in the market cutting a pumpkin open mm-hmm. and it's such a violent juxtaposition yeah. i remember the first time i saw that i like gasped kind of makes you wonder how she felt about the the concrete reality of being pregnant kind of having this being take over your body temporarily there's something very alien about Mm -hmm. her sort of like imagery around pregnancy in this movie where also like the kind of bird fetus in a glass Mm -hmm. like it also kind of reminded me of david lynch kind of eraser head vibes um in a lot of this movie this sort of like fetus slash child as alien i don't think she has any other work that's this deliberate i know jr in faces places he's kind of frustrated because she always she keeps saying my mo is chance whenever i'm doing work basically especially documentary work and this move doesn't really feel like she just kind of floated through space um and made it quite the same way that a lot of her other work feels like um and i just wonder if I don't know if she felt like rushed to get this film finished before she gave birth or if she had really, really urgent feelings about being pregnant and bringing a a life into this world. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting. I don't think she has anything else really with like chapters and... Yeah, that's a good point. I also think that like a different, a stark difference to me compared to her other documentary footage of people in a place is that there seems to be, like, a lot of distrust on the faces of the people that she's filming. Whereas, Mm -hmm. I mean, at least certainly by the end of her career, as you said, like... She can talk to anyone. Yeah, nobody has negative shit to say about Anya Svarta, so... Mm -hmm. um, But in this, it's like, yeah, she is, like, you know, an extremely pregnant woman, um, so already kind of standing out. four foot eleven. Right, and very young. Mm -hmm. um, And coming into this neighborhood of, like, very impoverished struggling people um and there is a lot of glances to camera that seem a little bit like what are you doing here um that mm-hmm. i think are very you know intentional that she included them but it was interesting both comparing that to something like faces places and also daguerreotype where even like the awareness of the camera is kind of cute because they like it's just like mm-hmm. oh just anyas we know her she's our neighbor it's like oh people acting trying to act normal Right. How sweet. Um, Yeah, totally. But yeah, and then also the structural framework of this being like an opera. So she has like a curtain rising and it's Mm -hmm. all, it's musical as well. Like he wrote this like ongoing operatic piece uh, for the entire 18 minute film. Mm -hmm. Le poisson dans l'œuf, le bourgeon dans la peau, et la colombe, la colombe dans l'eau. So it does feel very structured that, yeah, I guess is less chance-driven than later works. Some of it is fictional as well. Like, she has these figures of the lovers Mm -hmm. come back, and um, probably the two images I love most from this movie 
are of the same woman. One is in the like anxiety section where she has a sack full of potatoes that keep like spilling out, mm-hmm. um, which is like whenever my anxiety flares up, I kind of always think about that. It, it literally feels like that. It really <laughs> feels like that. I'm like, yeah, my potatoes are falling out of my sack yep. right now. I, I mean, back to the the characters of the lovers and things like that, I think all the stuff that's staged with the people that she clearly knows, they really remind me of the very, very dawn of cinema where they just got, like, theater actors to just kind of, like, do stuff in front of a camera because a camera existed and they were like, what else do we do? It kind of reminded me of those, like, weird staged almost like they were considered like pornographic for their time of like people showing their bloomers and stuff like that Um, they kind of seem choreographed (laughs) like that and they also i collect a lot of postcards and in my like search for postcards from the the knots and the tens and the teens and stuff like that i see a lot of these postcards that are of theater actors of their time and they're like very weirdly posed um and they were clearly collectibles for like teenage girls and stuff um to go crazy over and they also kind of looked like that and i wonder if that was i mean it's an opera according to her so maybe it was a little bit intentional but that's just always what i think of when i when she kept cutting back to these scenes yeah that's an awesome point of reference i always assume that Anisard is like incredibly cultured and like knows mm-hmm. exactly what she's referencing. So I bet that's true. Mm-hmm. Everything is just art. Like yes. it's just layers and layers of art. <laughs> and unless I live for eighty nine or eighty eight years, I'll never get to that point where it's just like a glacial deposit of every piece <laughs> of art that's ever been made in my brain. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. May we be so lucky. I know. It also reminded me just, and maybe because having you on the podcast was on my mind, but a lot of the imagery of a couple in bed reminded me of Le Bonheur as well. Yeah, it, it, the way the shot kind of from the foot of the bed is really, really similar. Yes, and also like sort of some of the abstracted body parts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, it's cool to see sort of those images that, yeah, lasted throughout her career. I gotta say, in a lot of her movies, I've noticed a lot of feet, a lot of things being <laughs> shot, and I'm Are not implying anything. But... Anya's Tarantino. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> you got me. But she always kind of shoots people from, if they're lying down, kind of from the foot up towards their face, like their feet are in the foreground and their heads are kind of in the background. And again, in Faces Places, there's a lot of foot stuff happening. Hey. Um, it's true. I just think yeah. it's funny. I think I. I guess maybe it's. I bare feet are very very vulnerable, and I think it's a really intimate thing to be barefoot for a lot of people. So maybe it's probably that, or she has a foot fetish. She, I mean, it can be again both. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, at least she's like not only showing beautiful feet. Like she'll mm-hmm. show her own potato feet. As well. I know. Um, they're so cute. They're so they're really cute. They're like a triangle. <laughs> like cartoon feet. It's so cute. <laughs> awesome. Well, sweet. Anything else to touch upon in any of these movies? Mm, we haven't talked about this yet, but um, she asks everybody in 
daguerreotype where they're from. And honestly, shockingly, none of them are from Paris, and maybe she just selected people that weren't from Paris. But every single person um, who, when they're asked where they're from, they'll say the name of their village, and then they really quickly will follow up with, oh, we're known for this, or oh, we have this here, this industry. And I just think it's really sweet. Uh, and I think she she always has this. She obviously loves Paris. She's basically a lifelong Parisian, but she's she's from the seaside, um, loves the ocean, and just loves villages, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, she does a lot of, did a lot of work that takes place in a small village where everybody knows each other. Um, and I kind of wonder if, if her leaving all of that in um, is kind of about her loving village life and maintaining that pride and being from a place even though you're very far away and in, in Paris, which could not be more different from rural France. Right. Especially, like probably even at that time. Um, I don't know, I just thought it was really sweet. I also do that when people are like, oh, where are you from? Like when I lived in England, I'd always be like, from Concord, Massachusetts, um, like Walden Pond is there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think we all do it. Totally. Uh, I'm like, yeah. West Hartford, Connecticut, near mm-hmm. the insurance capital of yeah. the world. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I love what she said of like when these people state where they're from, the air kind of shakes. L'air tremble un peu quand chacun nomme son lieu de naissance, son village à l'heure enfantine. Ainsi, voilà une vérité sur Paris 14e, son trottoir sans la campagne. She, like, sees those statements and, like, that that pride in place um, as sort of these beautiful, momentous things. And, yeah, and I, I like that she also, of course, like, gravitated toward it and landed in a part of Paris that feels like a village in some mm-hmm. ways because it has all those people that come from villages, um, whereas, like, a lot of the... Paris doesn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of interesting, a little side note, that she opens this movie at the foot of the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really know what to make of that, other than, like, just iconic, you're in Paris thing. Yeah, here um, we are. Yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it just, like, seems so disparate from where the actual movie is going to be about. Um, and the other thing that I, I made note of in the short the 2005 short um is sort of the influx of immigrants yeah Um, i thought that was so interesting way more algerian people etc right yeah Um, totally other than just that one guy in the first part that's true although he is from tunisia i think Mm -hmm. originally um Mm -hmm. and like yeah in the first movie like in the in the feature there's a couple people that like there's that other grocer um, with a very striking face and, like, dark brow um, mm-hmm. who talks about, like, his mother who he left in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's mostly French people. Um, yeah, and then in the second one, it like, almost immediately she's talking about how one of the cafes or whatever... Or no, I think it's the bakery that's, like, been replaced... Oh, no, it's the Blue Thistle. The Blue Thistle mm-hmm. has been replaced by... Like an Iraqi Lebanese cafe, mm-hmm. which looks like it absolutely slaps. It looks so good. Yes, she's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a bunch of hookahs instead of like weird perfumes. I'm like, dope. 
And that's um, what I kind of love about her, and I know that, like, the bar is on the floor if I'm like, wow, she accepts change. But she is probably the only old person I know that truly embraces all change and progress. I think mm-hmm. I think if she were alive, she would love TikTok, you know? Like, she just loves... And she loves people taking selfies and things like that later in her life. Um, I think she just jumps in with two feet and says this is good usually when things are changing around her when I feel like that can't really be said for most people that make it into their 80s late 80s yeah for most people period I like that she she kind of profiles that change in her neighborhood without being an old grouch about it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well thank you Susan this is thank you this is so nice yeah have me back anytime. Oh, please come back.